The Torah content from now through Pesach has been sponsored by the Kofsky family in loving memory of Adira, who loved big ideas and asking big questions. Hello, I'm Rabbi Matt Schneeweiss, and this is the Stoic Jew Podcast, where we explore the relationship between Judaism and Stoicism. And welcome to season six. Now that we are past the Moadim, uh, and uh, I'm starting the school year in earnest, then I hope to be able to return to a regular schedule of recording and uh, posting episodes of the Stoic Jew. Uh, I think in, in uh, at least for the beginning of the year, I think what I'm going to do is instead of, uh, of doing five episodes a week like I did last year, which was a little overwhelming, uh, and instead of doing irregular episodes when I feel like it, like I did for the summer, I think I'm going to try doing three episodes a week, uh, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Uh, we'll see how that goes. Uh, I uh, reserve the right to change my mind <laughs> and switch to a different model. Uh, but I think uh, I'm I'm trying to err on the side of um, of essentialism this year, of not taking on uh, too much and and crashing and burning uh, uh, like I did several times last year. So uh, we're going to try that. Okay. All right. So we are continuing on in Marcus Aurelius's Meditations, Book Four, Chapter Forty Six which I will read and then we'll, uh, we'll talk about how we're going to approach it. Okay. So he says, always remember what Heraclitus said. The death of earth is the birth of water. The death of water is the birth of air. The death of air is fire and back again. Remember too, his image of the man who forgets his way home and his saying that men are at odds with their most constant companion, the reason which governs all things reason with a capital R, at least in this edition that their everyday experiences takes them, take them by surprise that we must not act and speak like men who sleep, for in sleep we suppose that we act and speak, and that we should not be like children with their parents, simply accepting what we are told. Okay, so um, I uh, this is not the first time I've encountered this problem. One of the reasons why I have uh, been a little, uh, um, slow is the wrong word, hesitant is also the wrong word. I... I've had a hard time <laughs> recording this episode because I kept on thinking about it over the Chag, uh, and I wanted to record it during the Chag, um, but I had a hard time figuring it out. Um, you know, first of all, I had to look up exactly like what Heraclitus's relationship was with the Stoics, um, and so I looked at my handy dandy uh, Farquharson uh, footnotes, and he writes, he says these quotations are from Heraclitus, um, the great Ionian nature philosopher of the beginning of the 5th century BC, who was a kind of prophet to the Stoics, so, uh, suggests the question whether his book still survived in the 2nd century and was known to Marcus. There was, a contemporary interested, uh, there was a contemporary interest in his work, as we see from the frequent quotations of him, especially in Christian writers. He serves to illustrate a point or to embellish their compositions. So uh, what I tried to do, I mean, it was, didn't bode well, the fact that he says, uh, you know, he, uh, the Farquharson questions whether Heraclitus' writings were still available to Marcus Aurelius. Apparently, we don't have them. Um, I even have a book of philosophical quotations, and it looks like, you know, the only time, the only quotations we have from Heraclitus are the ones that are quoted by others. And then I just didn't know how to approach this, because it sounds like Marcus Aurelius, remember, he wrote this for himself, right? He didn't write this to be published. So it sounds like he's just saying, oh, remember remember these great quotes from Heraclitus. And he doesn't really explain why he finds these significant, you know. And since we can't look them up in the original context, I just felt like, what am I supposed to do? Speculate, you know. Um, and like, are there... Are there supposed to be? Is there supposed to be a, a connection between these quotations here? You know, uh, and given Farquharson's uh, description that that he was kind of like a 
a, a scientist, philosopher, prophet in the eyes of the Stoics? Like, are we supposed to read these? You know, he he clearly meant them um, literally. You know, he was trying. He this was the, uh, one of the. Um, I believe he was one of the pre-Socratic, um, you know, natural philosophers, right? Proto-scientists or whatever you want to call them. But did that? Did, did the Stoics take him that way, or did they take him? you know, in a, uh, in a metaphorical sense. So I kind of just spun my wheels for a long time thinking about this. And then I remember that like this whole, uh, Stoic Jew podcast is not me giving sheer on what Marcus Aurelius meant. And it's not interpretations of it. It's my own meditations and my own thoughts that were triggered by, by reading Marcus Aurelius and being a Jew, <laughs> you know? So I figure, uh, I'm just going to, uh, record and then just see what happens. So where did my mind go? And perhaps because I was working on this over Sukkot, then my mind went to Kohelis, uh, to the book of Ecclesiastes, and specifically the uh, chapter 1, uh, verses 4 through 7, which I'll read in English here. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth endures forever. And the sun rises and the sun sets. Then to its place it rushes. There it rises again. The wind goes toward the south and veers toward the north. The wind goes round and round, and on its rounds the wind returns. All the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers flow, there they return to flow. Now, uh, the reason why that came to mind, first and foremost, was the the fact that it is talking about the cycles of nature, how you know nature has all these built-in cycles, and uh, they just keep on cycling. Uh, but the second reason that this came to mind is the Ibn Ezra's interpretation, that Ibn Ezra says... Uh, Kohelis mentions the four elements because everything that is found beneath the sun is created out of these four elements, and to them everything shall return. And if you look at the Psukkim again, you'll notice uh, all four elements are mentioned. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth endures forever. That's the element of earth. And the sun rises and the sun sets. That's the element of fire. The wind goes towards the south and veers towards the north. That's air. And then all rivers flow into the sea. That's water. Uh, and again, this was the, the, uh, the belief back then based uh, on... Um, I mean, I was going to say based on Aristotle. Clearly, Heraclitus was before Aristotle, so uh, I, I don't know when this belief initiated, you know, uh, originated. But uh, you know, when the Rambam in Hilchos Yisodei Torah, uh, in the Laws of the Foundations of the Torah, talks about the basic principles of physics according to their understanding back then, he elaborates on this. He says. And, you know, and, and he, he really echoes what Heraclitus says. He says, uh, every entity which is a combination of these four fundamental elements will ultimately decompose into them. Some will decompose after a mere few days, and others will decompose after many years. However, it is impossible for everything which is a combination of them not to, de to decompose into them. It is impossible even for gold and ruby not to decompose and return to their fundamental elements, a portion becoming fire, a portion water, a portion wind, and a portion earth. Uh, and, uh, then he writes, um, okay. So at this point, it sounds like the Ramam is just saying that everything decomposes, uh, everything that's physical. But then the Ramam goes on and he, he circles back to what Heraclitus was saying. Since every entity will decompose and separate into these four fundamental elements, why was Adam told you will return to dust? Implying that man will return to dust alone because the major part of man's composition is from dust. Okay, that's not really related to our point right now. Uh, <clears throat> uh, every entity that decomposes will not return to the four fundamental elements immediately. Rather, it will decompose and change into another entity. That entity will in turn change into another entity until ultimately it will return to the elements. Thus, all entities are continually returning to their elemental state in a cycle. Um, then he goes on. These four elemental, uh, these four fundamental elements are in a constant state of flux, with a portion, but never the entire matter of one changing into another every day and every hour. And then he goes and he gives a lengthy description of how 
each one becomes something becomes the other element. So, for example, he says, uh, what is implied? A portion of the earth which is close to the water changes, dissolves, and becomes water. Similarly, a portion of water which is close to the wind changes, evaporates, and becomes wind, etc. Um, and uh, and he you know he elaborates on that. Now, again, all of this obviously is outdated science, but the question is if Marcus Aurelius was quoting this not for the purely for the scientific um, relevance of it, but for the moral implications, the question is like, what do we get out of this? And I think it's reasonable to assume that because even though these last couple chapters were talking about the fact that the universe is in a state of flux, you know, everything else he mentions from Heraclitus here does seem to be moral, right? Like, you know, that men are at odds with reason, that their everyday experience is taken by surprise, that we don't, we shouldn't just uh, be like, uh, like, children who accept everything that their, their parents tell them. So the question is like, what do we get out of this in terms of our, how does this change our view of the, of the universe in a way that affects our decision-making and our, uh, our happiness and our ability to find peace. Uh, and, uh, you know, for long answers to these questions, uh, you know, I really <laughs> would advise doing the Ibn Ezra specifically on Kohelis because he does learn that this is the entire theme of Kohelis of, uh, everything decomposing and, uh, and breaking down and nothing being permanent. Um, or Sforno, which I haven't done on Kohelis seems to also uh, say that, that the cyclical nature of the material world is a, um, you know, is a major theme of Kohelis. But what... I associated to, again, this is my own associations, I associated to the Rambam in the Mornavuchim, which I believe I've quoted on here before, in the Mornavuchim 310, when the Rambam is, is sending forth his theory of evil, and he says, all evil or all ra, hard to translate ra into one English word, evil, harm, badness, uh, corruption, decay, degradation, uh, whatever you want to call these things, all evils are privations. And then he goes and says that the nature of the of, of physicality of the material world is that it is always uh, attached to privation um, and that the material world is always in a state of flux. Uh, and elsewhere, he gives the analogy, which he attributes to Shlomo HaMelech, to King Solomon, that he says that um, that all material, that matter is like a a promiscuous wife. Okay, meaning that she's a wife, that she's attached to a man, to her husband, but she's promiscuous in that she's always seeking another man. So to every material object, all, all, all matter is in one form, but it's constantly seeking to, so to speak, to, to shed that form and take on a new form. You know? So when I teach this to my, or when I taught this to my high school students in EOV, uh, I use the example of... Um, you know, uh, uh, from the Lion King, from the circle of life, uh, when Mufasa is explaining this to Simba, where, you know, he says, uh, that, you know, the, uh, the antelope, what was the antelope? Hold on. Why am I blanking on what animal it was? Gazelles or antelopes? I don't know. Let's just call it antelopes right now. The antelopes, um, are, uh, are eaten by the lions and, uh, and the lions then die and become the grass and uh, the grass then feeds the antelopes, and that's the circle of life. But let's just take a snapshot here of the antelope. Sorry, the lion dies and becomes the grass. So in the Ramam's metaphor here, you have this matter, okay, that the matter that is in the form of lion. And when the lion dies, then 
uh, or during its lifetime, you know, that matter is trending towards death, so to speak. You know, all physical things are destined to die and are, are and, you know, entropy is such that they're, they will uh, eventually get there. <laughs> um, uh, and so, um, so the lion's matter, so to speak, if we personify it, is striving to cast off the form of lion and to take on the form of earth, you know. Um, but then once it becomes earth, then that same matter which used to be lion and now has the form of earth, so to speak, strives to become grass. And, and it goes on in the circle of life. And the Raman concludes this chapter in the morning book in 310 by, with the interpretation of uh, the end of the creation account, where it says, God saw everything he made and behold, it was very good. He says, um, the Raman says, for this reason, the book that has illuminated the darkness of the world has clearly stated the following proclamation. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. Even the existence of this inferior matter whose manner of being it is to be inherently connected with privation, entailing death and all raos, all evils. All, all this is also good in view of the, perper the perpetuity of generation and the permanence of being through succession. For this reason, Rabbi Meir interpreted the words, and behold, it was very good, as, and behold, death was good, according to the notion to which we have drawn attention. So in other words, even though matter is constantly, is inherently attached to privation, and therefore matter is always going through these cycles, and all forms will eventually cease and become something else, that is good because you end up with a world that has the circle of life in it, that has things constantly coming into being, um, and you can't have co coming, constant coming into being without things also passing away. Um, so what's the upshot of all this? <laughs> uh, the uh, I, I think the, again, I, I don't know what Marcus really has meant by this, but in terms of, of for us, I think the, the importance is to realize uh, that you know, we tend to view endings of things as bad, as opposed to viewing them as natural and viewing that natural thing to be good. And and the 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 point that is being underscored in all these sources that I just quoted here is that we are in a physical world. The physical world has a uh, has this cyclical nature where everything is subject to entropy and everything, you know. Um, Everything comes into being and passes away, and even though we don't hold by four elements, we still hold that things come into being and pass away. And that this is, the, you know, the, you might mourn the the loss of a particular phenomenon, you know, that the for a particular for an individual death is bad, but for for the universe as a whole, the existence of death is uh, is good. Um, and again, I think this is a, um, uh, you know. All three of these recognitions uh, are important for Stoicism and Judaism. The fact that a everything will die or perish, you know, whether it's a human being or a, or gold or a ruby. Um, two, it its perishing is not a, uh, a, a a a discrete phenomenon. It's a it's a cycle, you know. And three, that the cycle is good. It's part of the tov ma'od of the universe, the fact that the universe operates in these cycles. And therefore, to react to it, to react to something perishing as unnatural or as bad is, uh, is, is itself bad because that's a form of ignorance. You're, you're not recognizing the nature of the things you're, you're working with. So those are my meditations on that meditation. Um, I know there's much more in that, um, uh, in that passage from, uh, from Heraclitus, but frankly, I've been... Uh, I've been letting this <laughs> roll around in my head too long, and I think it's time to uh, move on to the next part of the cycle. So uh, let's end it here for today. If you've gained from what you've learned here, please consider contributing to my Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Alternatively, if you would like to make a direct contribution to the Rabbi Schneeweiss Torah Content Fund, my Venmo is at Matt-Schneeweiss and my Zelle 
uh, and PayPal are matchnavos at gmail.com. Even a small contribution goes a long way to covering the cost of my podcast and will provide me with the financial freedom to produce even more Torah content for you. If you would like to sponsor a day's or a week's worth of content, or if you are interested in enlisting my services as a teacher or a tutor, you can reach me at rabbishnewis at gmail.com. Thank you to my listeners for listening. Thank you to my readers for reading. And thank you to my supporters for supporting my efforts to make Torah ideas available and accessible to everyone.